So we began looking at SAS's suggestions of what can be implemented with our young people to make wonderfully productive, meaningful, self-efficient, and uh, deeply satisfied adults uh, after the children have left our care. The first was to embrace the idea of the eternities, the bookends of life, death and generation of life, uh, to flee age segregation and to uh, find ways to uh, integrate older people into the, the life of a younger person without them just looking at them as technologically illiterate or, as I've said, just looking at them and seeing wrinkles and racism, an unattractive reminder of their future, and then just uh, an unacceptable uh, uh, thoughts with regard to pattern recognition with regard to the different ethnicities and races. His second suggestion is uh, work is to engage in highlighting the good of productivity, or chapter five, which is entitled Embrace Work Pain. A work ethic is an inevitable. This chapter, says Sass, is about how painfully wrong I was in the assumption that a work ethic is inevitable. It's also about why failing to transmit an ethic that productivity is essential to human flourishing and deep happiness will leave us at odds with how America and Americans came to be. Finally, this chapter aims to persuade you that there is almost nothing more important we can do for our young than to convince them that production is more satisfying than the, the limited, quick dopamine hit of consumption. Indeed, a hallmark of a virtuous adulthood is learning to find freedom in your work rather than freedom from your work, even when work hurts. Although it is not universally fair, millennials have acquired a collective reputation as needy, undisciplined, coddled, presumptuous, and lacking much of a filter between their public personas and their inner lives. As one New York Times story about millennials in the workplace put it, managers struggle with their young employees' sense of entitlement, a tendency to overshare on social media, and a frankness verging on insubordination. Our hope is that our young people will begin to own the Augustinian awareness described in chapter 1, the realist perspective, that not everything we long or lust for is something we should really want. This is actually the current idol of our culture, expressive individualism. It is not fake, quote-unquote, to aim to be mature. And it is not fake to begin modeling the desired behavior even before it is, in a, it is a full and fair representation of who you are at the moment. I remain selfish and impatient today, but it is surely not fake or wrong to seek to sublimate those traits in my own life. The rise and fall of Ben Franklin's nation. Our national forebears had an almost compulsive preference for productivity over passivity. Quote, There's probably no people on earth with whom business constitutes pleasure and industry amusement in an equal degree with the inhabitants of the United States of America, observed the Englishman Francis Grund in, his, in the mid-1830s. Quote, active occupation is not only the principal source of their happiness and the foundation of their national greatness, but they are absolutely wretched without it. Unquote. Historically, Americans have needed to be working, to be producing. Both religious and secular early Americans united around the suspicion of leisure. The Puritans and Franklin agreed with the popular Richard Baxter when he sermonized that, quote, idleness is robbing from God, and idleness is robbing ourselves as well. American children learn the proverb that if you can see a man diligent in business, know that he shall stand before kings, Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Recreation is a more helpful word than leisure. It is dangerous to begin believing that the loving act is to insulate our offspring from work rather than planning for the bumpy and unglamorous tasks of teaching them how to work hard. Previous generations of Americans would regard our decision to raise the next generation largely free from toil as a destructive revolution. 
Albert Einstein wrote his son, Hans, quote, work is the only thing that gives substance to life. F. Scott Fitzgerald, quoted earlier, wrote his daughter, Scotty, quote, nothing any good isn't hard. Therefore, he explained, it was intentional that, quote, you have never been brought up soft, said Fitzgerald. Thomas Edison wanted to make sure the adolescents around him firmly understood that he, quote, never did anything worth doing by accident, nor did any of my inventions come by accident. They came by work. Teddy Roosevelt exhorted railroad workers in Chattanooga, quote, your work is hard. Do you suppose I mention that because I pity you? No, not a bit. For in work there is meaning. I don't pity any man who does hard work worth doing. I admire him, for he is becoming something. Reserving his pity and contempt for the lazy, Roosevelt believed that the worker who puts his play over his work could simply not be a good American. Despite the horrors of the curse, however, work never becomes a core problem, but rather the thorns that plague the work do. Work itself remains a blessing. We work to survive, to eat, to have shelter, to protect our loved ones, to create. Even the curse does not undo Scripture's declaration that in all labor there is profit. Solomon proclaimed to rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. Work is poetry, even humble work. Thomas Aquinas assisted that work must be understood as more than just a means to bodily survival. It is noble and therefore a necessity for the soul. To live well is to work well. To show a good activity, he wrote in his Summa Theologica. I would add it also shows a grand amount of respect for those for whom you're laboring. A job well done makes the world a better place. Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish philosopher, historian, and essayist, was one of the loudest and proudest evangelists for the work ethic that dominated the 19th century Americans. Quote, whatever, whatsoever of morality and intelligence, what of patience, perseverance, faithfulness of method, insight, ingenuity, energy, in word, whatsoever of strength the man had in him will lie written in the work he does. Produce, produce, were it but the pitifulest, infinitesimal fraction of a product, produce it, in God's name, produce. Contrary to the dour stereotypes created by the by Mencken, H.L. Mencken, and other revisionists of a century ago, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy, was the quote. Puritans were zealous about recreation as well, but they intentionally distinguished between recreation and leisure. The latter tries to become the center of life, whereas the former is an exercise or escape used to restore people, to refresh them, to recreate them, to be productive again. Although our kids are obviously blessed to grow up in a free country where they don't have to worry about where their next meal will come from where their next meal will come, we have the opposite problem of an entitlement bred by the surplus. If you live today, Flannery O'Connor sagely observed, you breathe in nihilism. It is the sea in which we swim. And she was writing half a century ago. Today we practically choke on the pathologies of our culture. Therefore, at our house, we have come to conclude that building and strengthening character will require extreme measures and the intentional pursuit of gritty work experiences. To borrow another delightful O'Connorism, we believe that when a culture unhelpfully pushes hard against us, we are going to need to push back just as hard. We believe that requires a healthy dose of inoculation against the bad effects of pure culture. Rousseau counsels in Emile to guard carefully a child's desires and sensibilities. But let's be honest, it's nearly an impossible task to do this. Short of going off the grid entirely and retreating to a cabin in the wilderness, there's no way to protect your kids completely from the rot of a celebrity-driven popular culture, secularism, consumerism, hypersexuality, you name it, the list goes on. So much of modern American life seems to be about finding more efficient ways of shirking responsibilities. Think of the young woman at Midland in her Pilates class that I discussed earlier in the book. 
he had an aside where he talked about this woman who looked to be competent but could not understand submitting at work and going against her immediate bodily desires even to honor her work commitments and had to be fired. American teens hear plenty about their rights but correspondingly little about their duties. In his 2014 book, Excellent Sheep, retiring Yale professor William Derasiewicz <clears throat> describes students at America's elite schools as smart and talented and driven, yes, but also anxious, timid, and lost. He suggests that although many adolescents can fill page after page of a resume, they have, quote, little intellectual curiosity and a stunted sense of purpose, trapped in a bubble of privilege, heading meekly in the same direction, great at what they're doing, but with no idea why they're doing it. Unquote. Bear in mind, Deresowitz is talking about the supposed cream of the crop, the undergraduates at Harvard and Yale, Stanford and Dartmouth, the likely leaders of tomorrow. Most of us will spend one-third of our lives and nearly half of our waking hours at work. This surely demands that we help our kids understand the whys of work and the meaning behind it. Yet unwittingly, so much of our culture works against this intentional embrace of work. There's an oft-repeated story about Martin Luther that most Americans once knew that illustrates a deeper way of thinking about callings. During the intellectual and spiritual ferment of the Reformation, Luther met a man who announced that he'd just become a Christian and was eager and anxious to now serve the Lord. So he asked Luther, how can I be a good servant? What should I do? He was clearly assuming that he should quit his job and become a minister or a monk or a missionary. Luther replied with a question, just like Jesus and the Jewish rabbis before him. What do you do now? I'm a cobbler. I make shoes, the man answered. Then make great shoes in Jesus' name, Luther replied, and sell them at a fair price to the glory of God. This is the end of this crucial chapter on intentionally educating and implementation of work, even hard work and challenges for your children with practical suggestions for all ages for parents to attempt to implement following what the, uh, Ben Sass and his family are attempting to do. I will not undermine the sale of this book with reproduction of this practical summary, as well as the other meaty sections of this book, not only in exp exposition, but also in practical implementation. <laughs>